Welcome back to the John D. Sperry Podcast. I am super excited to get back into LAMP with you today. And I've got a surprise, and I'm going to tell you what that surprise is. But first, the John D. Sperry Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's leading provider of spoken word content. Not only do they have an outstanding library of thousands of audiobooks, but they also provide podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals you won't find anywhere else. Audible has been my go-to for audio content for 10 years. Yesterday, I just went in and realized that I had an extra credit uh, because I didn't use mine last month, so I downloaded a couple of books yesterday, as well as three of their Audible originals. All of these books are of the finest production quality, and you can find books there that you can't find anywhere else. These Audible originals, books that are produced exclusively for Audible, and you can only get on Audible. My family enjoyed one of these books called Zero G last summer as we traveled to Los Angeles. The production value was outstanding, the story was great, it was a fun adventure, and you could only find it on Audible. So if you'd like to get one month free of Audible and get access to their entire library of all those things I mentioned, including access to daily news digests like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, then visit audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. That's audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast to get one month free access to their entire library and a credit for a book that you get to keep and access to their Audible originals. Do it now. That's audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast to get your free month now. All right, folks. Well, I have a special treat for you today on this week's podcast because we are now really starting to jump into this. I've combined two chapters. Today, you're going to hear chapter five and chapter six. Um, I think they go together really well. You're going to find out why, and it's getting into the adventure portion even more, and this is where it really starts getting fun. So I hope you enjoy Chapter 5 and Chapter 6. Chapter 5 Ladin woke to an intense ringing in his ears and a mattress under his prostrate back that might as well have been a stone slab for its lack of comfort. His mind was hazy as he sat up and rubbed his eyes, wondering where he was and how he had gotten there. The immediate retrieval of information from his memory was slow until the sudden image of Simic lying on the ground of his dwelling flashed in Ladin's mind like a bomb blast. He shot up off the hard surface of what was probably supposed to pass for a bed to get his bearings. The ringing quickly died down as the blood flowed out of the veins in his ears and he wasn't surprised to find himself in a white-tiled jail cell. Across from the bed, positioned in the exact center of the wall, was a meter-high mirror that was most likely used for observation from the other side. Ladin's thoughts darted to Simic. He had to know if the old man was all right. He thought about the reasoning behind his imprisonment, accused of using illegal parts, but he knew for a fact that what they said about the positronic relay system was false. It wasn't even scavenged, let alone poached. It was brand new, traded to him by a parts dealer in the market, not the gut. Something didn't smell right. Maybe Zade was right. Maybe someone really was trying to get rid of the streetjackers. Ladin stood up and examined his cell a little more closely. It was clean and sparse, and the doorway was a sheet of thick glass that allowed him to see the hallway on the other side. At the end of the corridor, a CPO sat at a table, probably ten meters from the entrance to the cell, reading something on a data mod. Hey! Ladin yelled as he pounded a fist on the glass door. The CPO looked up at him, then reached over and pressed a comm button on the surface of the table. Ladin saw his mouth move, and his voice filled the room. What do you want? The officer said in an almost bored way. Why am I here? Ladin asked. The officer stared at him from across the way and tapped the table control panel again. The hum of the audio system went dead. Ladin pounded again on the door. Hey, I'm talking to you. Why am I here? This is unlawful imprisonment. I demand a legalist. The audio hum returned. If you don't quiet down, I'm going to come in there and make you quiet down, the CPO said, sure to make eye contact with Ladin. Ladin's blood boiled. It had only been a minute or so, but he hated the feeling of being trapped. He wanted out. So he accepted the CPO's challenge. 
Come in here then, grid sucker, I dare you, he shouted as he paced the floor looking at the officer with a narrowed glare. The officer looked back, unamused as he shook his head before severing the connection once again. Come on, coward, you grid-sucking drone, give me your best shot, come on! Ladin yelled, pounding both fists on the glass. Even if he got his words handed back to him in the form of a few heavy blows, at least he would have someone's attention. The officer ignored the challenges, so Ladin decided to take things up a notch. He removed his left boot and started beating it against the door with the hard rubber heel. Come on, you CPO trash, come in here! He pounded rhythmically, but the guard still ignored him. Ladin looked around the room for anything he could use to get a little more respect. There was nothing readily available but the mirror, so he hopped over to the glass and started beating on it. How about now? You want to come and stop me now? He yelled, looking over his shoulder toward the officer. As he pounded, he was shocked to hear the glass begin to crack. When he looked back at the mirror, there was a spiderweb fracture sprawled across it as the glass succumbed to his thrashing. He smiled and pounded harder. The web expanded. The officer stood up and walked over to Ladin's cell door. He didn't look at all happy. That was the respect Ladin was looking for. Ladin squared with the door, ready to fight, his shoe his only weapon. When the door opened, Ladin charged, but the guard absorbed the attack by bracing himself in the doorway. The man was huge, easily a whole head taller than Ladin. With his arms wrapped as much around the guard as possible, Ladin started beating at the man's kidneys, one side with a fist, the other with his shoe. He felt for a moment that he was doing well, as the officer seemed immobilized. Unfortunately for Ladin, he couldn't have been more wrong. With a muscular left hand, the officer took Ladin by the back of the neck and pried him away. He then pushed Ladin across the room to the far wall. Ladin kept flailing his arms, but it was useless. The officer was too strong. Ladin felt his shoulder blades flatten against the solid stone surface, the back of his skull striking hard. As the initial dizzying shock struck him, he felt his entire body begin to rise off the ground. Now, I need you to stop hitting that glass, or things are going to get really uncomfortable for you. Do you understand? asked the officer in a calm but stern voice. Ladin found it difficult to breathe with the strong brute's hand pressing up against his throat, but he wasn't about to let the guy win. No, I... Didn't quite get that. Could you repeat it? Ladin said with a red-faced grin as a little bit of saliva dribbled from the corner of his mouth. Okay, streetjacker punk, the CPO said as he drew back a five-fingered hammer, ready to knock Ladin somewhere into the future, when a new voice interrupted the proceedings. That's enough, Captain, came a loud voice from the doorway. Ladin felt the CPO release him and his body suddenly dropped, falling until his backside collided hard with the solid floor. Yes, sir, replied the officer as he stood up fully erect at attention. In the doorway was a new face, an older man in a uniform wrapped in golden braids and covered in award pins, a secret security general. Ladin massaged his throat and coughed a couple of times. He wanted to say something smart, but thought better of it. That will be all, Captain, the general stated, and the guard captain marched out of the room. You have a visitor, boy, the general said as he stepped out of the doorway. The hulking figure of Hazan Malik replaced him, casting a dark shadow over the entire cell. He wore a white suit and a wide-brimmed hat rather than a wrap. His garb was very uncharacteristic of the desert people to which he belonged. He looked more like a Telluride diplomat than a human being. The deep olive skin on his face glistened with perspiration as he turned slightly sideways just to get in the door. Hello, Mr. Shahara, Malik said, taking off his glasses. In his hand, he held a metal case by a silver handle. He paused for a moment to greet Ladin, then walked deeper into the cell and set the box on the bed, then turned to face Ladin. I see you've gotten yourself into a little bit of trouble, Mr. Shahara. Ladin slowly stood up and straightened his robe. Ladin, he said, and it's nothing I can't handle. Oh, really? The last time I checked, poaching is punishable by death, Malik replied. Ladin's eyes shot wide. Poaching? That part wasn't poached. I bought that legitimately. Malik looked at him with a disbelieving smirk. Do you always buy legitimately? Malik asked. Is that seriously the charge? You think I poached? I've never poached a thing in my life. I may live my life in the gray area, so to speak, but poaching? I would never, never. He turned to the SS general. You know good and well that that relay wasn't poached, and neither were any of the parts in that mecca. The general said nothing, neither did Malik. Why am I really here? Ladin asked rather boldly as he threw his boot against the adjacent wall to his left and released a guttural, Gah! There's no need to get excited, 
Malik said as he sat down next to his metallic case on the bed. You don't understand, Mr. Malik. I don't poach. That's deliberately seeking out a functioning mecha and stripping it of its useful parts. He spoke as if reciting a monologue on jurisprudence. I don't do that. I only buy or trade for parts. I've never poached. Oh, I believe you, Latin. But you might have a hard time convincing the tribunal of that. The evidence is not on your side. What evidence? How is there evidence of something I didn't do? You sent your secret security. You obviously think I'm guilty, too. I sent my security to retrieve you because of a different matter. I just wanted to make sure you took their invitation seriously. But that relay they found, it wasn't registered as salvage. And you know that all incriminating evidence goes directly to the tribunal. They have it, Ladin, and they say it was registered live. How do you explain that? Even the gut merchants register their salvages. But I didn't poach it. I've never poached a thing in my life, Ladin repeated. I know for a fact that I bought that relay brand new from a merchant in the market, a man I trust. His name is Staffa. You can go ask him. Malik reached into his pocket and retrieved a data mod. Is this the Staffa to whom you're referring? He asked as he handed the mod to Ladin. Ladin watched playback of a news bulletin in which the legitimate market was raided that afternoon. Thirteen merchants were detained and one killed, a parts dealer named Staffa Sarif. Apparently, he torched his own shop, then engaged the civil patrol with a plasma rifle. He was shot in the standoff and burned up in the blaze of his own fire. It said he was part of a poaching ring that had gone undetected until recently. Ladin stared in disbelief at the image of the fire patrol as they extinguished the shop he knew so well. That's not possible, Ladin said. I mean, Staffa isn't that kind of guy. He doesn't poach. He's a kind old man, and he hates guns. This doesn't make sense. Well, it's true. Malik replied as he took the mod back from Ladin. Ladin stared distantly as he scratched his head. It's almost like he looked up into the deep black eyes of the Sultan, a new wave of fear overtaking him. The Mecca I made you, she was clean, I swear. Check her over again. There is nothing about her that is poached, scavenger, even second hand. You have to believe me. Look, Ladin, I'm not here to iron out the facts. That's the tribunal's job. I'm here to offer you a deal that could postpone the tribunal. Release you into my custody. Are you interested? Ladin looked at Malik intently. Yes, of course I'm interested. Would you want to be a streetjacker going into a trib with any kind of evidence against you, real or fake? You'd be hanged for sure. Good, Malik said as he reached over and unlatched the case he had with him. I have a story for you, Ladin, the Sultan said as he flipped open the lid of the metal case and reached in. An interesting thing happened shortly after my technicians and I turned your mecha on. Malik extracted the head of Ladin's mecha from the box, and Ladin's whole body slumped in disappointment. What do you think happened when we turned her on? Ladin shrugged. She did some stretches and asked how she could help you? No, no, Ladin. Malik chuckled as he set the head on his knee and turned it around so that the scalp access plate was visibly open for Ladin to see. Malik connected a cable that ran from the access panel on the back of the head to his data mod, and a schematic of the mecha's neural web opened up on the screen. The interesting thing was that she almost immediately cracked my new network security measures and linked herself in. Ladin stared blankly. Isn't that what she's supposed to do? Yes, I suppose. But there's something rather interesting about my security system. It's not only state-of-the-art and requires a user to link any new device, but it's also Telluride. And it recycles its clearances about 10,000 times per second. We use bioscans and facial recognition to get in because, as you know, it would be impossible for a human to change his access credentials 10,000 times per second. In fact, it's darn near impossible for a computer to do it without a very specific decoding algorithm. Ladin swallowed hard. Well, it's almost impossible. Malik corrected himself. Your mecha, within seconds of being initiated, managed to recognize the security channel, calculate the refresh rate, gain access to the nets, and embed itself as a user. Ladin stared as a drop of tense sweat rolled down his spine. Now how would she know how to do all that unless someone within the security system had written her security program? Malik said with a penetrating glare. Who wrote the program? He asked, finally getting to his point. Ladin hesitated a moment before saying, I did. Malik's expression didn't change, though Ladin didn't think he would ever believe a streetjacker capable of such advanced programming. All of it? Malik asked. 
Ladin nodded. You didn't steal or otherwise acquire any of it from, perhaps, less reputable sources, maybe upper-level programs in the clans or among the Africans. Ladin contorted his face, insulted by the suggestion that he hadn't written his own code, and less concerned that Malik thought him capable of communicating with the clans or the Africans. Of course, I didn't steal it, Ladin blurted. It's not like it was hard to write. It's a simple phase array. They're used all over the city to prevent market net raids. No, it's not simple, Malik rebutted. In fact, it's incredibly difficult to crack, and you seem to make it look as simple as opening a door. Ladin could see where the conversation was heading, and he was suddenly aware of his own ability to incriminate himself. It's not illegal, it's just a decryption code. Any number of streetjackers could do it. Malik laughed. <laughs> no, not any streetjacker. Trust me, I've tried a few. Ladin's eyes grew wide. What do you want? He asked nervously, knowing full well that Malik could make him disappear as easily as he likely made other streetjackers disappear. Malik dropped the head of the mecca back into the box. I thought you'd never ask, he said with a criminal grin. I need something, and I believe you have the skill set required to get it. Ladin squinted in confusion. Like what? You say you designed this mecha's positronic web, wrote her code? Malik asked, pointing to the metallic box with the mecha head in it. Ladin nodded. If that is true, then it is fortunate for both of us that fate saw fit to introduce us, Malik said. Ladin squirmed uncomfortably. The thought of being allied with the Sultan no longer seemed as appealing as it might have before. Not that he had ever thought of it before. Malik came closer. What do you think of the Tellurides? Ladin jerked his head back at the question. I, uh, don't really... Do you hate them? I don't really know any, Ladin said, completely confused by the sudden change in the conversation. Malik turned away. I hate them, he said. Do you know what they've done to this planet over the past two centuries? I've heard a few things, but what does that have to do with me? Ladin replied. Malik spun back around. Oppression, he yelled. They've held us down. That wall to the east, keeping the makers of technology separate from the creators of technology, exists because of them. Only one lithium refinery exists because of them. Yes, I'm the sole beneficiary of that agreement. But look at the state of this city, this world. We can't progress. We can't move on. Make a better existence for ourselves. And it's all because of them. Ladin didn't speak. Is that the world you want to live in, Ladin? Do you realize you're a streetjacker only because that's all the opportunity they've left you? Ladin looked into the eyes of the man he had believed to be the true oppressor of their city and the world. Malik nodded at him. You've never thought of it that way before, have you? Ladin shook his head. I'm going to tell you right now that there are risks with what I want from you. It will be the most difficult break-in you've ever undertaken. Ladin raised his eyebrows. Break-in? You want me to steal something? Malik didn't respond, but the devilish twinkle in his eye confirmed Ladin's inquiry. If it's just a net's break-in, I doubt it'll be the most difficult I've ever undertaken. Ladin retorted snidely. I guarantee it will be, my boy, Malik replied confidently. Ladin looked dubious. If you do this, if you succeed, I will make you a king in this land. Or any land you wish. Ladin looked into the sultan's eyes. His entire body screamed for him to say no, to take his chances with the tribunal and trust in their lack of solid evidence. But he was intrigued. What exactly are the risks? Ladin said with significant reluctance. There you go, Malik said in a much easier tone. The spectrum of danger, top to bottom. If you go undetected, nothing will happen to you. You get me what I want, and you live a free and wealthy man for the rest of your life. And if I'm caught? If you get caught, well, then it gets a little more difficult for both of us. But if you truly are the programmer of the security code in this mecca, then a lad like you needn't worry about being caught. What if I say no? Is it just the tribunal? He said, looking hard into Malik's face. More or less, yes. If you say no, then that's it. I wash my hands of you and you face the tribunal. I find another way to end tyranny on this planet. Ladin narrowed his eyes on Malik, who stood tall with his hands behind his back. And if I do it, I get money? I don't suppose freedom from tyranny is enough reward for you? Ladin shook his head and smiled. Uh, no, not really. Let's just say that when this is all done, 
you will have gained something more valuable than all the lithium ever refined on this planet in the history of mankind. Yes, but how many zeros come after it? Ladin asked, feeling brash. Enough, Malik replied. You will have more power and wealth than you could possibly count. You'll be able to buy your own planet and retire. Is that enough of a reward? Ladin looked at Malik, his thoughts traveling as fast as thoughts could go. What's the job? Ladin asked, and Malik grinned broadly. I thought you'd never ask. Malik picked his hat up off the bed and set it on top of his head. Have you ever heard of the lamp? He asked, and Ladin's eyes grew wide. Malik smiled at the boy's reaction. I want you to go to Pluto Station and steal the lamp from the Tellurides. He finished, then grabbed his metal case and stepped sideways out of the cell. Ladin suddenly felt it very difficult to breathe. Chapter 6 Poaching, Zade said in disgust. Ladin would never poach. That's the death penalty. He knows that. I know, Zade. Please, let me think a minute, Simic complained. The old man sat in his chair as Zade massaged the shoulder onto which he had fallen when the SS agents knocked him to the ground. On his lap sat a data mod plugged into the suspect positronic relay. I don't understand why they would arrest him this time. Scavenging is punishable by a day, maybe two in the crates, if they even care enough to come find you. This looks far more serious. I've never known SS agents to make house calls and be so aggressive. What did they say exactly, father? Was there anything that made sense? asked Zade. I don't recall exactly, but I told them all the parts were mine. Then they scanned this. He held up the relay. They said it was unregistered, that it had been poached, but I can see right here that it was manufactured in the Chin province and has never been used. It is currently registered to me. There isn't a single way that this could have been linked to Ladin. He used my credits to buy it. Simic furrowed his thick white eyebrows. That doesn't make sense, Zade said with the appropriate amount of confusion in her voice. I'm going down to the municipal building right now, Simic said. I'm going down to the municipal building right now, Simic said, sitting up and pulling away from the mechanized hands of his daughter. No, father, let me go. Let me talk to them. I'm good at that. I'll find out what's going on. Simic looked at her. No, you're not going out there alone. Not in this climate when streetjackers are disappearing and poached parts are in high demand. I'll go. Zade had already wrapped herself in her thin robe and was spreading out her purple shawl to place over her head and around her face. You stay here, father. I'll be fine. I can do this faster alone. Zade, no, Simic said sternly. Father, I can do this. You keep saying I'm almost human. Let me put it to the test. Let me show you that you're the master craftsman that you doubt you are. She drew up her innocent yet entrancing smile. Simic shook his head at his child wanting to spread her wings beyond the nest. I'll be monitoring your movements, he said with a disappointed sigh, but Zade smiled wider and threw the last piece of the shawl over her face. I love you, father, she said, then walked out the door. Ladin followed Malik through a series of corridors and into an airlift. He stayed silent. Though he had accepted the job, he was still panicking because the lamp, the fabled link access manipulation program, was a myth. It wasn't real. It was a fairy tale made up by some poor slob as a hope for all poor slobs to get out of their meaningless lives and leave it all behind. How could he steal something that wasn't real? Was he being sent on a suicide mission? Was there something else Malik wanted? They exited the lift into a bright white room filled with data monitors and a single hover chair. It was the cleanest space Ladin had ever seen in his entire life. Looking around, he marveled at the power of the room itself. His eyes immediately found the one item that stood out against the cleanness of the space, and he darted for it. My mod! Y you didn't destroy it! 
I'm not a barbarian, Malik replied. Ladin examined his small computer, turning it over and checking the inputs and power supplies. It's fully charged, and I've had the processing chip updated. You're at least a hundred times faster now, Malik said as he looked at Ladin with an expression that seemed to ask for thanks. Ladin said nothing. He activated the device, and, as promised, it started up much faster than before. His operating software was different. He shook his head and reached down to his feet. From the inside of his boot, he extracted a small data chip and slid it into the receiving port on the side of the mod. Dialogues began to open, and he tapped rapidly on them. Malik made an aggressive move toward Ladin and grabbed the tablet-sized module out of his hands. What are you doing? Ladin protested. You need my operating software to get this job done. Ladin looked eagerly and longingly at his data mod. You could have said something, you know. Malik handed the computer back, and Ladin snatched it from his muscular, hairy digits. With tender care, he ran his fingers subconsciously across every edge of the unit again, and then removed the data chip, placing it back in his boot. Malik turned away, then spoke to the air. Vizier, open the route file, he said, and the smooth, almost natural-sounding peal of the voice interface computer responded. Yes, Mr. Malik. Three data screens, all at least a meter in diameter, sprang to life. On the left-hand screen, Ladin saw nothing but words he was too far away to read. They were segmented into different sections on the screen. The middle screen was a three-dimensional diagram Ladin could only assume was Pluto Station, a telluride outpost on the edge of the solar system where most visiting tellurides worked and dwelled, giving them a much clearer route for both communication and travel to Tellura. The screen on the far right of Malik's display was a mass of pictures in blue wireframe on a black background. He couldn't even begin to guess what that was. So, about the lamp, Ladin said, taking a steadying breath. Is that really what you... He stopped when Malik turned and glared at him with accusing eyes. The two stared at each other for a moment. You don't believe in the lamp, Malik asked with a curious gaze. Well, I... It's not that I... It's a myth! It's what streetjackers talk about while waiting for nets to raid, he said feeling a twinge go down his spine as he incriminated himself in illegal Nets activities. Of all people to not believe in the lamp, Malik said and started laughing. That's ironic, he added with a hearty, belly-rolling laugh that would have been jovial if the sinuous man had a belly. Ladin tried to laugh with him, but having no idea to what he was referring, his expression was more along the lines of wanting to cry and run away. As his laugh subsided, Malik turned back to the first monitor and continued as if Ladin had no misgivings at all. This is what you're going to do. Essentially, you're going to break into the Telluride Mother computer on Pluto Station and steal the Link Access Manipulation Program. Ladin shook his head, unable to hide his trepidation at the plan he'd signed on to. What is the problem, Mr. Shahara? Malik asked, finally recognizing, with extreme aggravation, Ladin's misgivings. Well, it's just that, first of all, this sounds like suicide no matter what you want to steal from the Tellurides. And second, he paused a moment. The lamp isn't real. A program that allows its user to access any net, any system, it's just a little too unbelievable. Oh, it's real, Malik said sternly, and it does a whole lot more than that. It lets the user manipulate any link access to any network anywhere in the known universe, giving him anything his heart desires. Malik paused to gauge Ladin's reaction. But if you'd rather face a tribunal, be my guest. No, no, it's just that it's a story. The details grow more absurd every time someone tells it. Like what? Malik inquired challengingly. Ladin chuckled with disbelief. Well, they say it's a program that intuitively grants wishes, that its code is unreadable, that it can't be copied. All code can be copied, even Telluride code. Malik chuckled, and Ladin thought that maybe this had all been some kind of a practical joke by Malik, a test of some kind. So Ladin chuckled back. It isn't Telluride code, Malik suddenly replied with a straight face, and Ladin's heart sank into his stomach. It's something even they can't explain. And from what I know about the lamp, all your stories are true. But the Tellurides are the ones who have it, and that's precisely why they control the galaxy the way they do. Ladin stared, not sure if the Sultan was even in his right mind. He didn't want to encourage insanity, 
but that didn't keep his young mind from being curious on so many levels. Where did they get it from? Ladin asked. The only explanation is that they found it and stole it from another advanced species only a few hundred of our years ago. From there, they made their way across the galaxy looking to expand their reach, looking for lithium to sustain their own lives, then looking for other resources. From there, it's my guess that the original users of the lamp passed on, leaving the program dormant somewhere buried in a cave of security systems with other confidential files. That's what you need to break into in order to retrieve it. How do you know all this? Ladin asked after staring blankly for a moment. How I know this is none of your business. But if I'm the one who's going to risk my life for this thing that may or may not really exist, then I'd like to know a few details, if it's not too much trouble. His tone was insistent, more stubborn than fearless, and Malik didn't look appreciative. I can make you disappear so fast it'll make your head spin, boy. So please believe me when I say I don't care what you want. If you don't want to swing by your neck, then you'll have to take this one on faith. Ladin shook his head slightly and stared for a long second. Well, if those are my only options, I guess I don't really have a choice, he replied in a whipped tone. That's more like it. Malik said as he stepped over to the middle data screen and pointed to a green line that wound its way through a diagram of what Ladin believed to be Pluto Station. This is where you need to go, the Telluride Central Data Hub orbiting Pluto. You've heard of Pluto Station, haven't you? That was Ladin's confirmation, and he took it with a simple nod. You'll take a transport with a diplomatic credential all the way to the station. You'll travel as a Telluride but operate on the human side of the station. It's confusing, but it's necessary to keep you under a low profile. From there, you will... Can I ask you something? Ladin suddenly interrupted. Malik didn't look pleased, but he obliged. How many times have you tried to do this? I mean, I could make an estimated guess based on the number of streetjackers that have disappeared recently, but seriously, how many times? Malik turned to fully face Ladin. Enough times to be out of time, Malik responded as he turned back to the screen. Ladin shook his head disappointedly. How many of them actually got to Pluto Station? Malik glared. None, he said, then followed up with, But you're different. You have something they didn't have. Oh yeah, what's that? Blood, Malik said, and Ladin felt his spine stiffen at the word. Are you saying your other agents didn't have blood? No, I'm saying that you have the right kind of blood. You see... In order to get onto the transport, you need the right kind of blood. To get into the hub main computer, you need the right kind of blood. To get anywhere without being asked a thousand questions in the Telluride world, you need Telluride blood. And only fresh samples can be submitted at various checkpoints. Oxidation of blood invalidates the test. And how am I supposed to do that? Ask a Telluride on the station to give me his DNA? No. Malik responded firmly. You're going to provide the sample yourself. Ladin tilted his head. And how am I supposed to do that? I'm human. Malik walked over to a chair and sat down. Have you ever huffed lithium vapor? He asked with a relaxed demeanor. No, I'm not a junkie, and besides, it would probably kill me, Ladin said. You? No. Me? Yes. For someone like you, it might just taste weird. What do you mean? Ladin asked, a hint of confused frustration in his voice. Your mother, what do you remember about her? Nothing, Ladin responded. I can't remember anything before I was six. As far as I know, I never had any parents. Well, you had parents. They were killed in a massive accident on the industrial highway. I'm sure you've heard of it. Very tragic. Yeah, I know, Ladin said. That's all I know. They didn't exactly leave me a lot in the will, he said sarcastically. Well, your mother was Telluride, Malik said. Ladin froze and stared hard at the sultan, then shook his head at the absurdity of the statement. No, that's not possible. Tellurides can't live here. They need lithium to survive. Even a half Telluride would die. That's true. But when you were born, they discovered that your hybrid lungs were able to breathe both Earth air and Tellura air. It's very common in half-breeds. Your parents split time between Earth and Pluto Station. You were able to breathe both environments, so it was convenient. 
They eventually made a more permanent home here on Earth because you had developed Tellerin asthma. That happens when young lungs are exposed to constantly changing environments. It was easier for your mother to wear a lithium vapor injector that hung from her belt. I'm sure you've seen Tellerides wearing them. Fiber-thin tubes going into their noses. Yeah, I've seen it, Ladin responded, but his mind wasn't on the details. He was reeling from this new revelation, and he frankly didn't believe it. How do you know this? Ladin asked intensely. Your father was a diplomat for the Sods in the South. That's how he met your mother. She was the daughter of a Telluride diplomat. Your parents' life together was well documented. After their deaths, you ended up in St. Muhammad's Orphanage here in Bag City because your Telluride grandfather couldn't or wouldn't take you. And your father's parents just plain disappeared. My speculation is that your grandmother and grandfather were in the vehicle during the accident. You're half Telluride whether you like it or not. Ladin stood wide-eyed as he stared at the sultan. If you don't believe me, it's all right here, to a section branded with the seal of the Ministry of State. Ladin read quickly, then slowly, then quickly again. Everything Malik was saying was true. But how had Ladin never heard any of it? This is why you're the perfect candidate for this job, Ladin. You're Telluride enough to pass a full-blood analysis. You were literally born to do this. Ladin's natural skepticism told him not to believe Malik. What he was saying didn't make sense, but then he was only six years old when it happened, and there was nothing in his memories about parents, grandparents, or any of what Malik had just said. He had only known state orphanages and the streets. What Malik was saying was feasible, but that didn't keep Ladin from doubting. He was not Telluride. Prove it, Ladin challenged. Malik pointed again to the first data screen. You just read it. It's all right there. Your father's record is in the large segment. Your mother's is the one next to it. And that list of statistics is all we have on you. Your aptitude test until you ran away from the orphanage. No, I mean, prove it, Ladin said, holding out his hand. Zadeh walked through the doors of the municipal center of Bag City. She was greeted by a CPO in a hard plastic helmet with a visor and a shock baton in his hand. He stepped in front of her before she could walk through the security checkpoint. What is your destination, miss? Zadeh looked innocently at the guard. Um, I'm looking for information on my brother. He was arrested this morning, she said shyly as she began to choke up a little bit, secreting saline from her artificial tear ducts. He's innocent, but they took him away. I need to find out where he is. She let loose with a fabricated sob and grabbed the guard by the arms and buried her face in his chest, pushing him slightly backward against the wall where she reached her right hand out to access a small control panel. All right, miss, all right, the guard said uncomfortably, fumbling with where to place his hands on such a distraught girl to get her off of him. You need to go to the query desk. It's just up those stairs and inside the three doors in front. They can answer your questions there, he said as he carefully pulled her away by the shoulders, but not before she could deactivate the security sensor with the wall-mounted control panel. She wiped her eyes and sniffed. Thank you, sir. Thank you, she said as she straightened her robe and shawl and wiped the final tears from her cheeks. As she walked through the checkpoint, there was no alarm detecting artificial entities or weapons. In a matter of only a few seconds, she had reversed the heating element in her cheeks and unflushed her face. She shut off her tear ducts and pulled herself erect, walking with confidence. Walking into the vastness of the municipal building with its elaborate ceilings stretched high overhead, every step reverberated off the hard tile floor and stone walls with a clicking echo. A bank of a dozen query booths stood in a long line in front of an equally long wall that bisected the whole room from one end to the other. Only half of the stations were occupied. Zare scanned the occupants of the booths, looking for the ideal target. She spotted him in the third stall. He was a slight, pale man with a receding hairline, hunching shoulders, and a damp face. He was perfect. Zare walked toward the man with a confident stride, one foot directly in front of the other. Excuse me, she blurted out at the man before she had even reached his stall. I need to know where I can find my client. She said, slapping her hand loudly on the stone countertop, startling the attendant so much that he jumped. 
Her new persona was authoritative, quite the opposite of the girl at the checkpoint. Uh, yes, and who was your client, Miss, uh, Council, she said sternly. Council Mishka. My client is Laden Shahara. He was wrongfully arrested this morning for possession of poached mecha components. I demand his release immediately before I file a grievance with the CPU and the city. All right, Miss, uh, Council Mishka. Let me just look here, the attendant said as he tapped on his data mod. Zade looked casually around the building as she calculated her next move once she found where Ladin was being held. What did you say his name was? The man asked nervously. Shehera, Ladin, Zade answered sternly. He was arrested this morning. I want him out of those crates this instant, she barked. All of the remaining attendants and a few onlookers stared at the scene she had created with uncomfortable disquiet. She pretended not to notice. I'm not seeing his name here. Does he go by an alias, or perhaps the arresting officer hasn't submitted the report yet? Zade turned with real concern and faced the man. That's not possible. Reports are made instantly. It's been more than an hour since the arrest. Do you have a record of two officers in the Dodd district this morning? She kept her tone firm, but her processing units were busy running through scenarios. No, there was no one in Dodd to make an arrest. There were CPO patrols, but that's normal with the amount of illegal salvaging activity there. Then where is he? Zade asked. I'm afraid I don't have any record, counsel. The man tried to be helpful, but he was getting frazzled. Zade looked at him, but didn't say anything. Her system was designed to adapt rapidly, but the situation had her positronic web in a bind. I don't know what else to tell you, the man said. This is preposterous. I know my client was arrested in Dodd, and I know he was booked here. Now, I want to see a superior, or I'll be back here with a mandate requiring a legislative search for Mr. Shahara. Is that clear? The attendant nodded. Yes, counsel. I'll be right back, he said nervously. The man left his station and headed for a door in the wall behind him. Zade realized she may have pressed a little too hard as two security CPOs came from a side room and focused directly on her. She acted casual and stood completely upright, not fidgeting or looking uncomfortable, in spite of the natural impulses and tendencies that Simic had built into her programming. Before long, the attendant returned to his station with a captain in tow. He was taller and much broader than the pale sergeant with whom she had been dealing. The captain's sun-baked skin was red and perspiring despite the air-cooling system. He had a mustache that obscured his face, but above a pair of shiny cheeks were two dark eyes squinting at Zade suspiciously. Who did you say you represented, Miss, uh... Mishka, Council Mishka, Zade replied with the same air of confidence and stubbornness as before. I'm looking for my client, Ladin Shahara. He was arrested this morning on false charges and... Yes, Shahara, I'm afraid your client has no record with us. In fact, we have no civil record of anyone by that name. The captain folded his arms across his chest. Zade stared into his eyes, her logic programming working overtime to rationalize why she was still standing there when her purpose for being there had reached a dead end. So then I walked out trying not to look like a stray dog with my tail between my legs. The coordination of facial expressions and body language had me so confused that I wanted to force a reboot. That would not have gone over well in that building, Simic replied. They would have deactivated you immediately. Simic dropped a positron isolator on the workbench. I knew something was up with those SS agents. They were too aggressive and too intent on Ladin. On him specifically. I should have known it would be a waste of time going to the municipal building when it was the SS that came for him. It was worth a shot, Father. I just don't understand why they were so intent on Ladin. Simic didn't respond. Sensing the necessity of a change of subject, Zade turned the monitor of the positron scanner toward her eyeing the blue positronic relay that stood as the only evidence against Latin that the SS agents inexplicably left, she asked, What have you found with this thing? As she slid a finger down the monitor screen in order to trace a single pathway to its root. Not a blasted thing, Simic blurted. Is Latin in trouble? Zade asked timidly as she hugged her father around the shoulders. That boy could be in a lot of trouble, 
but it frightens me to think who would be able to pull off a false arrest like that. Zade lifted her head. You're not suggesting that the Sultan is responsible for this, are you, father? She asked, her expression furrowed with concern. It's the only thing that makes sense. Lydon doesn't deal with anyone powerful enough or concerned enough to do what happened here today. If you eliminate the impossible... He slowly shook his head and looked blankly out the window, obscured by decades of sandstorms. What do we do then? Zade asked, sounding more like her first model, the little eight-year-old girl who found Ladin in the orphanage. I don't know, Zade, love. I'm afraid to think of it. So that was chapters 5 and 6. We are getting into the thick of it now. Now we're starting to see the conflict and the the sort of scenario, the situation that's developing here with Malik and Ladin, and I love it. I think this is where I started really having fun writing this, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to create that suspense. Um, there's some great suspense in here. Ladin's learning some things. Malik has told him that, uh, it's told him some secrets he didn't know, some things he didn't know about his own life. And the biggest bomb that was dropped on him is is that his mother's a telluride now when i when i go back and read this and i read his reaction um he's this he's a kid and it mentions in the book he's a kid who's skeptical of everything and he distrusts everyone right i mean he's raised on the streets he's he's had to defend himself for 10 years and so he automatically distrusts everybody and here he's with malik the sultan the leader of their world the leader of their nation and Malik presents him with some information. Now, Aladdin can't prove it or disprove it, but this is this is the this is getting into the character of Aladdin. Um, what kind of a kid is this? And um, I was listening to a podcast uh, not too long ago, and I think it was um, it was the Adam Carolla show, and he had Kevin Bacon on, and they were talking about how when Kevin Bacon was seventeen, he moved to New York City. And they they addressed this whole issue of a 17-year-old moving to New York City. And Kevin Bacon said he was living with a sibling, I believe. But he was 17. And they talked about how 17-year-olds today are not the same as 17-year-olds in the 70s. Um, how teenagers were more mature. And I think that's, um, maybe that's societally driven. Um, maybe, you know, the world was a little more raw. We were less connected. Um... But that's that's sort of the aspect here that I'm getting into with Ladin. At 16, he's wildly immature, as as you've seen a little bit of right now. But he's incredibly smart, and so he has that ability to adapt on the street. And this 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 uh, this quality of his, where he distrusts everybody naturally, this comes from that. This comes from that that uh, learned experience of being on the street and surviving and his uh, survival instinct has really kicked in i think that's i think that's at the root of it he has an intense survival instinct that he's going to live and he's going to survive no matter what and while he includes himself among the street jackers uh, you get this idea that even he knows he's above them um, that he's better than them in some way, be it uh, his ability to write code or whatever. But again, he's a 16-year-old who, wildly immature, but has a survival instinct that makes him viable in the world. And his knowledge and natural talent makes him an asset. So that's who Aladdin is. In so many books these days, the hero has a superpower or the hero has something that nobody else has and it just like in my immortal light books it's literally a power it's a an, an energy power that the protagonist has in the immortal light books and this book is not the same Ladin has an ability that is more subtle um you know he's he's not gonna save the world with his ability so to speak and he has no desire to it's just that he is incredibly gifted at coding at at writing algorithms at hacking into things at gaining access 
and uh, that is sort of his superpower. But it doesn't really place him in the top one percent. We could we could say that, um, and this is a discussion I've had with myself a lot. Are you the best in the world at anything? And and I'm not talking about being oh the father to my children. <laughs> I'm still probably not the best at that, but. Um, I'm talking about like skills and and abilities and talents. Are you the best at anything? Are you the Michael Jordan? Are you the Tiger Woods in his prime at anything? Um, and it's easy to use athletes because athletes rise to the top or musicians um, or artists. They all rise to the top if they're the best at what they do. Is Laden there? Is Laden one of those? Is he a sleeper best in the world? And I guess that remains to be seen. Um, he is just really good at it. Uh, maybe he's the Kobe Bryant. You know, maybe he had to learn everything he knows from somebody. Uh, other people on the street taught him what he knows. Um, you know, Kobe Bryant's game, if you're a basketball fan, and I, I don't know how many people are basketball fans, but Kobe Bryant would sit and watch his favorite players growing up, and he would collect a library of skills that he would learn from watching them. And he implemented that library, and he was able to access um, those different skills and those different things that he learned whenever needed. And maybe that's where Laden is right now. Maybe Laden has gained so much knowledge from other street jackers, from other people on the streets that have taught him programming and, and uh, coding that he can now, he has the skill of being able to access that as if it were stored in his hard drive and he could call it right up to Ram in his brain. Um, so that's Laden. Laden is an, I think Laden is, he's an, an every, everyday kid that finds himself in sort of extraordinary situations, situations that he wasn't even looking for. So his choices led him here. So this, that, that's where we're at now. That's where we're at with Laden. And I think it only gets more fun from here. Now I want to say a few things about Zade. Zade is one of my favorite characters that I've ever written because she's basically a human robot. Um, she she has this Simic described her core. She has this element about her um, that makes her more human. We don't understand it yet. We don't understand what it is that he's talking about. But she apparently has a sort of evolutionary DNA in her as a robot in her programming. And this DNA makes her different than other robots. And we see that in Chapter 6 when she goes to the municipal building and she's downright deceitful. She is, she puts on uh, a, a character twice. She puts on these characters that, um, that allow her to get what she wants to be manipulative. If you're familiar with any of the sci-fi laws of robotics, this, um, this is the gray area. This is where a robot thinking thinks for itself. Um, there's a theme in the book Dune, and basically it's illegal to create a machine that can think like a human. Okay, so that's that's sort of the Dune philosophy, and Zadev totally violates that because she is she is more human um, than any other android, and we're supposed to believe that anyway. At least that's what's been presented. She's more human. And so she, this is why I love this character. I wanted to write her as a person, but I wanted her to be the sort of extreme version of the idealistic potential of, uh, of artificial intelligence. She is the epitome. She is the culmination of one man's entire life devoted to this subject. And that's, that's what I wanted her to be. And that allows her to be a friend to make decisions on the fly in order to help people, to serve people around her. So that's what I was going for. Uh, with, that's what I wanted Zade to be. And we're seeing that. Um, I, I just, I think it's so comical. I, I wrote these scenes, when I, when I wrote scenes about Zade, I wrote them as if she were actually human. But just to sort of keep us grounded that she's a robot, I, I throw in those little tidbits about how her processing wasn't, like her logic processor was about to overload because it was not logical what was happening. Um, I, I, I talk about how she uh, she reversed the heat sensors or the, the heat array in her cheeks so she looked less flushed. Um, so she, you know, when she was upset and crying, her, her cheeks were red and so she reversed the heat and it's what the human body does and her computer processor does this for her. So I, 
uh, I wanted to keep everybody grounded in the fact that she's still a robot, but you're going to think over and over throughout this book that she is a human. And I, th I think I think I accomplished that goal when I wrote this book. Um, something I forgot to mention on the last podcast, and this is the thing that I found happens when you are in charge of your own writing, drafting, and uh, publishing process, and that is um, you make mistakes. <laughs> I guess we're all human. If you are an aspiring writer, if you are writing and you want to self-publish, um, get as much help as you can. I have a ton of help. I have an army of people who go over my books and review my books, and um, they suggest changes, and it, and it's great. All of these people catch all of my mistakes, and then I do the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> I take their suggestions, and I go back in, and after I've made their changes, I decide to make my own changes, and then I don't give it back to my army. And my army can't see my mistakes. In chapter four, I found uh, not just a typo. Typos are okay. Like, you can even find typos in Harry Potter, right? There, There's like one or two. But there was a whole paragraph missing from my original draft that did not make it into the published copy of the work. <laughs> I submitted a manuscript to be published that was missing an entire paragraph at the end of chapter four. That is ridiculous. I remember I got to the end of chapter four and I'm like, there's something missing. And so I went I went back into my drafts. I went back into my archive and I found my original draft from 2017. And there it was, the missing paragraph. So I copied it in, I put it back into the manuscript and um, it is in the audio portion. Though it is not in the published portion, it is in the audio portion. So you guys are lucky if you listen to chapter four. That last paragraph is is uh, exclusively for audio. I might someday resubmit the manuscript for publishing, but who knows? Then we'll have conflict. I mean, I've already done that once. <laughs> and I'll explain that later when we meet a character whose name I had to change. Uh, thanks to a, a thanks to an, a mobile app. I'll just leave it at that. And as I was going through chapter five, even... I found a couple of typos, and these were simple ones. This was um, there was one where I was missing quotation marks at the end of a piece of dialogue, and I put a question mark instead of a period. Although the question mark could have worked. I mean, if you if you were to go if you were to read that and see a question mark there at the end of the sentence, it would have worked. But as I was reading it out loud, I'm like, no, this has to be a period. So I changed that to a period. But the, those are the typical typos. I have read this book out loud at least three times. No, 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 no. I take that back. At least three years in a row to four separate classes of seventh graders. And we read it out loud together. And this is how, this is another way to catch typos. And so I've been through this book 25, 30 times. I've been through this book and I still find little typos. So get yourself an army. Get yourself a copy editor or two. I have, I have three editors and they are everything. They mean everything to me. Um, my three primary editors are my wife. My wife has a master's degree um, in education, just like I do. Uh, my mother, who has a master's degree in education, and a dear friend named Wendy, who is a professor at the at the local college. These people are all really bright, smarter than I am. All of them, every single one of them, smarter than I am. Um, they read more, they they catch more, and they're probably all better writers. I know my wife is a better writer than I am. Her narrative style is outstanding. Um, she can write, like her first draft sounds like my fifth draft of, of a piece of literature. And, uh, but you know, she, she wrote, she, she's written a book. Um, she's not published it, um, but it's fantastic. She has a great voice. Um, my mother has written some and Wendy is just, she's my copy editor ninja. Wendy catches everything. And I've mentioned Wendy in another episode before. All right, gang, last of all today, um, something I mentioned in the last podcast was that I was going to start a new segment called What's Good in Audio. Well, this podcast has gone a little too long, so I'm going to save that segment for the next episode. Um, hopefully, I can also get Patrick Hartsfield on here, a fellow writer, a friend of mine, and uh, get his input on writing. Um, so tune in next Wednesday for the What's Good in Audio 
that's where I'm going to make a recommendation either on audiobooks or podcasts, um, especially podcasts. I love listening to podcasts, and I'm going to share my favorite ones with you. A lot of them are some of the most popular podcasts in the world right now, so I'm going to try to refrain from from talking about those. Um, so I'll keep you posted um, on what's good in audio for next time. Remember, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at John D. Sperry. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at John D. Sperry. I hope to find you there. Follow me for any updates. Um, and I will see you next time. Be good. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And we'll see you next Wednesday. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, John D. Sperry. Additional music and sound effects are provided by EpidemicSound.com. The John D. Sperry theme song is Abstraction by Telling Studio. This podcast is a John D. Sperry production, copyright 2020.